0: Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit MSNBC.com app to download. Tonight on The Readout.
1: There is nothing consistent with the Republican Party's continued attack except for the racism and incitement of violence against women of color in this body. I had a member of the Republican caucus threaten my life and you all and the Republican caucus rewarded him with one of the most prestigious committee assignments in this Congress. Don't tell me this is about consistency.
0: Republicans removed Congresswoman Ilhan Omar from the Foreign Affairs Committee, another example of House Republicans putting the show ahead of any kind of policy agenda. Also tonight, President Biden talks policing reform with the Congressional Black Caucus, but there's still almost zero chance of getting enough Republican support for anything meaningful. Plus, the next presidential campaign is already here upon us, Nikki Haley wants in, and other Republicans are clearly interested in challenging Trump, but don't necessarily want to subject themselves to his schoolyard bullying just yet. And Jordan Klepper from The Daily Show joins me. He spoke to Trump's MAGA supporters at his recent campaign stop in South Carolina, and I'm just shaking my head. Good evening, everyone. I'm Michael Steele in tonight for Joy Reid, and we begin with a very dysfunctional Congress and its slow and sluggish start. The 118th Congress is now dubbed the Seinfeld Congress. It's a show about nothing, and it is indeed a show. These are their priorities—fiscal showdowns, infighting, and political revenge. So today, Republicans made good on their promise to boot Democratic Congresswoman Ilhan Omar from her seat on the Foreign Affairs Committee. The move catered to hardliners embittered by the removal of Paul Gosar and Marjorie Taylor Greene from their committee's last term. The final vote was 218 to 211, with one Republican voting present. Here is Omar, one of the first Muslim women in Congress— just ahead of the vote.
2: And my leadership and voice will not be diminished if I am not on this committee for one term. My voice will get louder and stronger,
3: and my leadership will be celebrated around the world as it has been.
0: But what this Seinfeld Congress is doing is more about what it refuses to do, which is govern. Instead, it passed a bogus resolution denouncing socialism, a largely symbolic effort that does nothing. Never mind that many conservatives were more than happy to accept taxpayer-funded PPP loans the first year of the pandemic. But I digress. So let's pause for a moment and call this out for what it really is boogeyman politics, a distraction a narrative to justify their insurrectionist crimes, an embrace of white nationalism. And if the Republicans behind this farce knew what socialism even meant, they would know that that practice isn't a thing in America. But you know what is increasingly becoming a thing? Fascism. From Republican lawmakers appearing alongside Nazi apologists to coup defenders getting plum committee assignments to public expressions of belligerent nationalism and racism. We're getting a pretty clear picture of what fascism can look like in America. The stagnant, ineffectual party isn't just about dysfunction. It isn't about, it just isn't about failure to move an agenda. It's about settling a partisan score. That's what dictators do. Now, it may feel good in the moment, but it's bad for the country. Country. Country a concept largely forgotten by far too many in the modern-day GOP. Joining me now is Kurt Bardella, Democratic strategist and former House Oversight Committee uh, spokesman, and Mara Gillespie, former aide to Congressman Adam Kinzinger and House Speaker John Boehner, and Sahil Kapoor, senior national political reporter for NBC News. Welcome to all of you, so, Sahil, (laughs) what was it like on the Hill today, buddy?
4: It's quiet right now, Michael, but this has been a a quite extraordinary start to the new Congress. I've covered uh, this place for the last 12 years and I've never seen anything quite so sluggish. I've never seen Congress start off so slowly. It wasn't until today that committees were even organized. So you had America's most powerful lawmakers sitting around twiddling their thumbs, not able to hold hearings, uh, attend hearings. Over in the Senate, you know, you had uh, symbolic votes and multiple symbolic resolutions uh, to take stand, uh, you know, to take a stand against Stalking uh, to take a stand against modern slavery that had no opposition, could have been passed by unanimous consent, but they had nothing to do to fill the time. So they held roll call votes for that. And of course, in the House, Republicans have this narrow majority. You're going to see a lot of fights, you're going to see a lot of drama, because one thing we're not going to see a lot of, Michael, is legislating. This majority uh, is going to struggle to pass even symbolic messaging bills like they are on immigration and the border, which is a -a bailiwick issue for the House GOP. They're not able to get uh, a bill on that. Passed as well, let alone things like appropriations and the debt limit, things that have to get done to keep the lights on. That's going to be the biggest legislative battle uh, to come later this year, uh, because of course they have to get that through a Democratic-controlled Senate and signed into law by President Biden to avert things like a government shutdown, to avert uh, a calamitous, you know, uh, economic situation if the U.S. breaches the debt limit. So there'll be there'll be a lot of silliness, but there also comes a point of seriousness where uh, we'll see if this Congress has what it takes.
0: Yeah. Uh, th- yeah, that's the question. Does it have what it takes? So, Samara, so, so Sahil's so piece today uh, used that terrific analogy uh, of Seinfeld, you know, a show about nothing, now a Congress about nothing, uh, to describe this dysfunction. It, do you think that's an apt way to look at this, or is there something else that we're missing that the Republicans may have planned and how they're going to open up and move uh, this Congress?
2: government moves slow. That is not a surprise to (laughs) Any of us, nor should it be. It was how it was designed. And when you have a divided government, that's even more prevalent, right? It's going to be a slow slog in some cases to get things done because there will need to be coalition building. That is going to be a tough tough sell, especially when you have what people are looking at as tit-for-tat kind of things, like with the committee uh, squabbles. But things will get done. It will just take some time and, and a lot of effort between members to overcome some of their more personal issues with each other and get to work.
0: Well, that's the problem. I mean, it's about getting to work. Uh, as you know, Kurt, you, you've been in that bubble a little bit. And, <laughs> and, and Texas Republican Chip Roy told The Washington Post that he'd prefer that both parties acknowledge that there are people within their conferences who make of, uh, offensive and crude remarks, but allow them to battle it out in committees, right, right, rather than strip the opposing party of that, right? But look, this is the tit for tat in the game right now. You know, the Democrats did this, so now Republicans have to respond How does this advance what the American people expect and want from this Congress? A divided government should not mean nothing gets done. Well, this is the thing. I don't remember
5: Republicans running in the midterm elections saying that they're going to be the best investigators that the American people have ever seen. I don't remember them (laughs) running campaign ads saying we're going to kick off Democrats from congressional committees if you put us in power. I don't remember any of those things being central theses to the rationale to elect a Republican, and and you know this because you ran the RNC, so you understand how important campaigning and then getting something done is. When I see Republicans go out there, and the first impression they had was complete chaos with even trying to elect a Speaker of the House. The second impression is taking members off committees who did nothing wrong. Their only felony seems to be they they told the truth about the Republican Party, and they can't get anything done on the economy, on inflation, on gas prices, on the laundry list of things that they said they would get done if they were elected, they have no answer for now, so they're going to put on this charade. It's really a reality TV publicity stunt spectacle, whether it's their, their sham investigations or these stunts right now kicking members off committees. What I don't get about this, though, is when you try to silence somebody, when you try to cancel somebody you end up empowering them. People like Adam Schiff, Eric Swobo, Ilan Omar, they're going to be even more powerful and more important and visible because now they're going to have some free time on their hands when they're not on committees to go and make Kevin McCarthy's life miserable.
0: So, so Samara, actually, Kurt raises a very good point. So what do you do with a problem like Marjorie, right? Marjorie Taylor Greene's back uh, on committee. She's been allowed back on. Uh, Here's what she's been doing uh, with that very important job.
5: Can you tell me uh, how much how much COVID cash went to CRT? It's CRT? Critical race theory in education. It's, it's a racist right. uh, uh, curriculum used to teach children uh, that somehow their white skin is not equal to black skin and other things. In Illinois, they, they received $5.1 billion um, at, at an elementary school there that, that used it for equity and diversity.
0: So, uh, so everybody understands five point one billion dollars for an elementary school um, must be nice. School now, in her defense, her communications director told Newsweek she misspoke and that she was referring to the entire Illinois school system. Though there is, of course, zero proof of any of that money being used for CRT. So, so Mara, <laughs> this is who Kevin McCarthy wanted by his side. This is who Kevin McCarthy elevated. Um, to a position of not just uh, authority with the committee, but literally authority and seniority within the party. Um, what do moments like this say to you? You've worked for a speaker. Mm-hmm. You've worked for a member um, on the Republican side. I mean, When you assess this, how do you see it?
2: I won't sit here and even try to defend Marjorie Taylor and That's not what I'm here to do. I won't do that. <laughs>
0: Anyone, anyway. You may I, need that $5 billion I mean, dollars yeah, to no, do that, right? I,
2: even then, even then. But what I would say is that the committees should be set up where members are elected or assigned by their own party. That is how the system works. And for a majority to usurp the will of the other party is not productive. In any case, we watched it happen when— uh, then Speaker Pelosi did it to Marjorie Taylor Greene and brought that vote before the House without having a full ethics investigation. We have procedures in place to protect the integrity of the
0: institution.
2: I think that's important. Again, I'm not saying that I think that she needs to be on these committees, but if that's the decision that the so conference made and we, her constituents elected her. So
0: let's take your point and just go a little bit further with it. And I agree with that. The committee, uh, the speaker, should be able to put people you know, in this party where he wants them. So you're telling me there was nobody else who could take the committee chair that she's gotten? I mean, that's that's the thing what we're looking at. It's not that Marjorie Taylor Greene shouldn't have a committee. Mm-hmm. It's like, why are you taking someone who you know has that level of intellect with respect to the job, right, mm-hmm. um, and and put them in that kind of position? I don't think anybody begrudges, okay, she's a member of Congress, but shouldn't you sort of look at the the, the totality of the caucus and go, how do we— uh, move forward so that we don't make a fool of ourselves.
2: You absolutely should. And that's upon the party leaders. Right. It's upon the members of the conference. Just like in the scenario with, and I would say with Representative Elon Omar, her colleagues elected her to be on that committee. Whether you agree with it or not, similar with Marge Taylor Greene, whether you agree with it or not, right. her conference put her in that position. And, and that was their decision. That's the will of the majority or minority. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to agree with it, but it,
0: but that's the way the system deni- you works. You can't
2: deny it. That's how the system works. All right.
0: So let's take that working a little bit further. You've got uh, Congresswoman Lauren Balbert, who had this to say on the floor yesterday.
6: Gun free zones are the most dangerous places in our country. The Second Amendment is absolute and it's here to stay. A recent report states that Americans own 46 percent of the world's guns. I think we need to get our numbers up, boys and girls.
0: So, so what she fails to understand is that the U.S. makes up four percent of the world's population. Uh, that the other fifty-four um, percent is everybody else. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, how how do we begin? To, to make sense of this and have conversations around important issues like gun legislation, like criminal justice reform, when members of Congress just can't get the basic facts right. And, and instead of reaching for and lunging um, for the, the, the political opportunity to own the other side, whether it's Democrats owning Republicans or Republicans owning uh, Democrats— The American people are sitting back watching this. Um, And so issues like guns and other things don't get really addressed. Right, right. Well, I think, honestly, the answer, and this is going
5: to sound partisan, but the answer is elect more Democrats if you want stuff done on gun reform, if you want stuff done on criminal justice, if you want stuff done on racial uh, inequities and equality in America and police reform. Because it's not that both sides can't get their facts straight. It's that one side has decided to surrender their entire ideological you know, high ground to a bunch of lunatic, moronic, misinformed, conspiracy-driven idiots, and they're letting them drive the ship. The reason why Marjorie Taylor Green is on the Homeland Security Committee and the Oversight Committee, the reason why Lauren Bobart is out there having this outsized impact, because they successfully held the Speaker of the House hostage so that he could become Speaker, the weakest Speaker that we've ever had in American history, by the way, and and they're letting them, the inmates, run the asylum. You can't have an honest intellectual conversation with people who believe that there are things that like Jewish space lasers out there, man. Right, like right. that's just not going to happen. So the answer ultimately is if you want more stuff done on the problems that really matter, if you want to stop mass shootings, if you want to stop school shootings, you got to elect more Democrats because we're the only party that has actually stepped forward and say we will do stuff on it. We got to have the numbers.
0: So Sahil, uh, in, the, in the minute we've got left, I want to pick up on, on Kurt's point, because in your piece, you point out that dysfunction is not just a, a Republican thing. The Democratic-controlled Senate voted only three times in the entire month of January. And during the first month of 2017, the Senate voted 35 times. In 15, 2015, it voted 46 times. Is it the Republicans motivating force to keep Democrats from governing, too? Or are the Democrats getting it through their own kind of, uh, you know, dysfunction?
4: yeah it sort of depends on who you talk to on this one, Michael. The Senate came in on swore you know it swore in its members on January 3rd and took several weeks off. Uh, Democrats say that there was a bigger problem on the Republican side to get you know their members onto certain committees and uh, we have reporting that suggests uh, Eric Schmidt, the new Republican senator from uh, Missouri, was trying to kick one of his colleagues off the Judiciary Committee, and they all said, no, that's not going to happen uh, and that was part of the holdup. but you know, the Senate doesn't have a, a lot to do this month. the Senate Typically, tends to move more slowly than the House, and of course, you need 60 votes to get most things done. But I will say, Michael, one of the one of the most important things that's going to happen this Congress, uh, and, and you know, and this will be a significant thing, is the Democratic-controlled Senate is going to approve a lot of President Biden's judicial nominations. They've already started that process. A batch of 39 judges has begun to move through the Judiciary Committee. Democrats have 51 votes now, so they don't need to jump through that extra hoop uh, on the floor and do a discharge petition. I'm uh, sorry, not a discharge petition. I'm that with the House. Uh, Discharge right. vote to bring it to the floor. And uh, a number of Democratic senators I talked to say they can top uh, or at least get close to President Trump's number of more than 200 judges confirmed over the four years. That could be the most significant thing that happens uh, you know, in the next two years. And beyond that, I think uh, it'll be a matter of whether this Congress can keep the lights on, can uh, avert default. Michael.
0: Well, we're going to we're going to stay tuned for that one, my friend. Kurt Bardella, Mara Gillespie and Sahil Kapoor, thank you all very, very much. Up next on The Readout, President Biden meets with members of the Congressional Black Caucus to talk about police reform. Not that there will ever be enough Republican support to do anything about it, but we'll be back to talk about it.
1: and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future.
0: It's been roughly a month since five Memphis police officers brutally beat Tyree Nichols to death, to death. That horrific and heartbreaking killing has renewed calls to pass federal police reform, a prospect that seems unlikely given that the majority party in the House has little interest in it And there isn't enough Republican support in the Senate to overcome a filibuster. Today, six Democratic members of the Congressional Black Caucus met with President Biden and Vice President Harris in an effort to up the ante. According to reports, they came looking for commitment that the president would address policing in his State of the Union address next week and look for commitments that the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act would be the starting framework for any legislation. That idea seems dead on arrival because the Republican leading police reform negotiation, South Carolina uh, Senator Tim Scott, said no. So where do we go from here? And when members of and when will members of Congress wake up and address police brutality, Well, that still remains an open question. Joining me now is one of the members of the Congressional Black Caucus who attended today's meeting, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Jackson Lee of Texas. She also attended Tyree Nichols' funeral yesterday in Memphis, and the congresswoman is in her car. We got her fresh out of the meeting. Thank you so much uh, for for joining us. You met with the president for a little over an hour um, this evening. Uh, What did the president uh, say and what did he commit to?
3: Well, first of all, Michael, good to be with you and good to be on the readout. Uh, the meeting was invigorating between the uh, president and the vice president. It was absolutely invigorating on understanding the issues. That's the first step, that we all understand the issues. and We're on the same page. Really, the question is about public safety. Uh, and the question is about whether or not it is an American issue, because there are many groups that have faced the brunt of brutality uh, over these last years, there's Asian hate, uh, there uh, acts against Latinos, obviously African Americans, and clearly we all want to do better. We want police officers to go home to their families, uh, and we want to ensure uh, that um, uh, that Tyree uh, memory uh, is upheld as his mother wanted, because he should be alive. He should not have lost his life. So I think where we uh, came to is that we can agree on the issues dealing with public safety, uh, and we can also deal with the question that many aspects of legislation that has already been uh, introduced, i.e. the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, had bipartisan support on a number of issues there. So we're not starting from scratch. We're really starting uh, to generate and hopefully collaborate with Republicans that understand that all Americans deserve public safety and all Americans deserve to have the confidence Uh, that they won't lose their loved one beaten to death on the streets of America.
0: So let's let's pick up on on the George uh, Floyd Act, uh, for example. You know, Congressman, Republicans by and large aren't very interested in proposing uh, anything with teeth in it. And it certainly doesn't seem like they want to address the proposals that are specifically outlined in the George uh, Floyd Act. Now, that said, uh, over the weekend, Senator Lindsey Graham seemed to offer an olive branch of sorts on one of the key sticking points, qualified immunity. So in a tweet, he said, quote, I oppose civil lawsuits against individual individual officers. However, holding police departments accountable makes sense and they should face liability for the misconduct of their officers. So do you think this is a a jump off point for conversations with Senate Republicans, um, maybe even House Republicans?
3: Well, that's where I have the optimism, Michael. First of all, I think that uh, there's enough shock about what happened to Tyree and frankly what happened to George Floyd uh, that uh, really uh, Republicans are finding or wanting to find ways of common ground. Uh, Senator Graham's uh, interest, uh, tweet, is one of the first steps. Uh, And I believe that there's common ground on uh, no uh, chokeholds, on no knocks, for example. I think there are common ground on ensuring that you don't have random stops, that there's no racial profiling. Uh, We can really work together and we've got a framework. And what about common ground on training? I think there's a lot of common ground that one could work on. Um, I don't want to get in front of what ultimately will happen in the Senate. They're taking the lead. Um, The Congressional Black Caucus, as you well know, taking the lead and working very hard. Uh, The Judiciary Committee in the House has had the experience uh, around these bills, and there are a number of bills dealing with public safety, uh, human trafficking, victims, uh, issues of of data collection and others uh, that um, we think that uh, we can be hopeful. I'm not giving up. I said this is an American issue. Uh, This is an issue that impacts all Americans and all families. And we should make the commitment of legislators that every family member, uh, a beloved family member, has a right to traverse the streets of America and come home safely, as do our good officers who are serving the public.
0: So, Congresswoman, I agree with all of that and, and, and what you said. But here's, here's another part of the reality I think that, um, you have an opportunity to really kind of address in this moment. Uh, the bottom lines for Democrats is, you know, you're not in the driver's seats at, at the end of the day, right? You've got, you've got a tight number in the, in the Senate and you're in the minority in the House. Do you see this as an opportunity to, opportunity that goes beyond just trying to expose and embarrass Republicans, but rather actually craft a piece of legislation and put it on the floor, House and Senate, right? And and have that up or down vote. Just push the system to address this issue, because we have a lot of conversations, and then there's another body. We have more conversation, and then there's another shooting. At some point, someone's got to do more than just talk about paper. They got to actually— legislate on a bill. How do you see the Democrats changing the game up this time around?
3: Well, Michael, as you well know, we did put in the House a bill. I,
0: uh, I think we lost the, the congresswoman uh, just as we were getting to that question. So that was put a pin in that one, Congresswoman Jackson, uh, Sheila Jackson Lee. We'll get back to you in that. But we thank you for taking time to be with us still ahead. Who will be the first Republican to step up and challenge Trump in 2024? <laughs> yeah, we're about to find out.
6: Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Wise Is this Happening? author Ari Berman on his new book, Minority Rule, the right-wing attack on the will of the people and the fight to resist it. If we're going to be at a moment in time when so many people are saying we have to understand
4: the Constitution as it was intended, then we have to understand that it was intended to check democracy, not to expand it. And we can have such a view of the Constitution that says that all of these institutions are so amazing when it's so obvious that they made a lot of mistakes and that a
6: lot of it needs to be corrected. That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening
7: wherever you're listening right now and follow.
0: After months of having only one Republican presidential candidate, the 2024 2024 primary field is slowly starting to take shape. NBC News is reporting that former U.N. Ambassador and South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley is set to launch her bid for the White House in two weeks, which would make her, at least for now, the sole challenger to Donald Trump, a position that apparently almost no one in the Republican Party wants to be in. The New York Times is reporting that despite being supposedly eager to challenge the former president, GOP contenders are still too afraid of him to be the first. The Times writing that these hopefuls have so far been unwilling to officially jump into the race, wary of becoming a sacrificial lamb on Mr. Trump's altar of devastating nicknames and eternal fury. And we're already seeing that with Haley. Just hours after the reporting came out regarding Haley's pending announcement, Trump posted on True Social an old clip of her saying that she wouldn't throw her hat in the ring if the former president ran in 2024, writing, Nikki has to follow her heart, not her honor. Hmm. Joining me now is David Plouffe, MSNBC political analyst and former campaign manager for President Obama, and Stuart Stevens, my buddy, senior advisor to the Lincoln Project and chief strategist for Mitt Romney's 2012 campaign. Gentlemen, so Stuart, the part of the headline from The Times I, I really want to talk about is this idea that Republicans are eager to challenge Trump. They're so excited. Can't wait to jump in because quite honestly, I don't think any of that's true. (laughs) I know these guys, they aren't particularly eager to do this. Now they may be, you know, beating their breasts here and there talking about the moment Trump, you know, will engage with them and, and, and thinking that it's going to go one way, but you know, the minute he does, it goes another way. How do you see it?
7: Um, Listen, I think that if we're looking for courage in the Republican Party, Michael, um, we're going to have to hunt it with dogs for a long time. Um, Listen, I think, why is Nikki Haley running? I don't think she's really running because she thinks she's going to be president of the United States. Um, She's running. First of all, she doesn't have anything else to do. She's raised some money here in a pack and she'll run. Um, And, you know, I would say she's running to be vice president. I don't think she's going to go out there and attack uh, Donald Trump. But, you know, I mean, no one else really embodies sort of the collapse of the party as well as Nikki Haley. This is someone who at one time you remember, Michael. I mean, she was I'd, she had it I'd all. to get her elected she, in 2010 was what the party was supposed to be. Yeah. And she went out and said that Donald Trump was everything that she taught her children not to be. And she went from that to saying that she wants to run to carry on the Trump legacy. It's just so sad. I mean, she's already broken. Now, Trump has a history of breaking candidates. She's already broken before she gets in the race.
0: Yeah, I, I, that's that seems to be the, the narrative for a lot of these guys, David. Um, when you even look at someone like uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, the other day we saw all these headlines that said DeSantis snapped back or hit back at Trump after he went after DeSantis' COVID response. But did he really? I think he's just ducking and covering at this point. Now, that wasn't a clap back from DeSantis. That was more like, uh, OK, pat on the wrist.
8: Right. But it gets outsized coverage because so many people have cowered. Right. I mean, he basically you know, destroyed the 2016 field uh, and brought them to heel. So to me, that is, listen, everyone's got to run their own race. And if you're Ron DeSantis, maybe you don't want to turn it into a daily slug fist with Donald Trump. But you got to show voters, political observers uh, that you cannot just take a punch from him, uh, but you can counterpunch and maybe throw some. What's remarkable about this, by the way, is, you know, there's some exceptions, but history shows us, you know, the timing of this matter. So if you want to be president, now's the time to run. Let's just look at Barack Obama. Let's say he had listened to most people in 08 and 07 and not run. Eight years from then, he would have been a creature of Washington, probably would have had no chance uh, at the nomination or very little. So so this is a big thing. If you think you should be president or could be president, you know, you can't say I'll run in 2032. You've got to run now. Um, and listen, if you can't deal with Donald Trump, you can't do the job. I mean, Trump was again, I think an aberration where he didn't really take the job seriously. But I think most people run for president, uh, intend to try and do something with that office. Uh, and so it's an interesting test. Um, but I think the big question here is how do people assess the side of the f- size of the field? I think there's some sense that Trump wants a bigger field, but right now you could argue that DeSantis is the person who would benefit from the bigger field if he's able to kind of hold on to his strength uh, and looks like the more dominant figure in that primary. So um, but yeah, I think people are still scared of him. And for me, if you can't deal with the truth social missive from Donald Trump, uh, you have no uh, reason to think that you could occupy the most powerful office in the world.
0: So, Dave, I want to follow up with you on, on what you were saying about the size of the field, because US Today, uh, USA Today is reporting that some Republicans are actually concerned about having too many candidates uh, in the primary field, saying if the party fails to consolidate around an alternative candidate, that they risk, you know, winding up with Trump as the, uh, the nominee again, very much like they did in 2016. In fact, New Hampshire Governor Chris Nunu is quoted as saying, I think there's a general understanding and appreciation that, look, if folks are getting in the race, fine, but if you're not doing well, you've got to get out. Stewart,
7: what, um, what does that even mean? Who's going to tell them to get out? Well, you know how these egos know, I are? Think, I, think it's a, it, <laughs> I think it's a false premise. The premise is that the Republican Party is looking for someone other than Donald Trump. And there's no reason to believe that at all. There's a certain establishment that finds Donald Trump um, to be uh, distasteful. And would rather vote for someone else who knows which fork to pick up and won't go out and talk about having sex with their daughter in public. But the general public in the Republican primary, they want Donald Trump. And I think we have to look at, you know, Donald Trump is going to be a much better candidate in this race than he was in the last. And the last, he was an incumbent who had to defend a record. I mean, Donald Trump defended a record. He didn't even know what his record was. (laughs) Now he can go out and just attack everybody, which is how he was in 15. And I think the guy is going to have a lot of fun at this. He enjoys it. He enjoys inflicting pain. And David, to me, has always been a good example because his candidate, uh, Senator Obama, enjoyed that race uh, more than anybody else. And that's usually not a a bad indicator of who's going to win that race.
0: So just to see, begin to see the the sort of effect that Trump has already, you have my buddy Maryland Governor Larry Hogan walking back some of the comments he made today on The Hugh Hewitt Show, saying he would support whoever the Republican nominee is, even if it's Trump. Uh, Now, he's come back and clarified those remarks, tweeting, quote, to be clear, my position on Trump hasn't changed. Trump won't commit to uh, supporting the Republican nominee, and I won't commit to supporting him. As I repeatedly said, I fully expect to support the Republican nominee, who I don't believe will be Trump. So, is it wishful thinking for not someone just like, you know, Hogan, but for all these Republicans to think that they can sort of walk that that fine line uh, to the nomination um, without having to recognize at some point, Trump may be the nominee, and then what do you do?
8: Stuart? Stuart? Well, Michael, I think um, it is a, it's a difficult line to walk. I would say this, though. I don't think this is that complicated. I think most Republicans, now. Larry Hogan's been a fierce critic of them, as you know. I think mm-hmm. most Republicans can simply say, I'm running for president. Yes, I agree with a lot of things Donald Trump said. He can't win an election. You know, we lost 18 badly. We lost 20. We lost 22. It's time for fresh blood. Kind of the gold watch strategy. Now, he'll go you know, apoplectic, obviously, uh, and you'll get a lot of criticism for saying that, but but I think they all have to find some way to distance. Now, if they're asked, I think almost all of them, maybe Hogan's the exception, would say, sure, I disagree with them. Don't think I should be our nominee. But anybody's better than a Democrat is what they'll say. I don't think this is this complicated. They get really tied up with a knot. And I would say, I listen, I agree with what Stewart said. Right now there's no evidence. That you know, there's a huge groundswell amongst Republican primary voters for someone other than Trump. But if you look at some of the polls, some of the focus groups that have been done, that I find interesting, there is an opening for somebody. Uh, You know, he's not sitting there at 70 to 80 percent of the of the likely primary vote. Maybe he's depending on the poll, 35 to 45. That's an opening right now. DeSantis seems to be the the next person on deck, we'll see if he can put it together. I mean, as Stuart knows, you know, running for president is an obstacle course. Most people come out of it less whole than they go into it. So it's a really, really hard thing to transact. And I also do agree that last race did not suit Trump. Uh, He was, you know, having to defend his record. Um, He was obviously playing a little more tight. Um, I, he didn't seem like he was enjoying that race. You know, 16, he was a happy warrior, maybe an unguided missile, but a happy warrior. And I think we'll see him come back to that. But I do think there's an opening here. Uh, but if I were, the, you know, the question is, when does DeSantis have to decide? He probably doesn't have to decide now, but probably by April. You got to get into this thing, I think, by Q2 to put together a formidable winning presidential campaign.
0: So, Stuart, just r- real quick before we go, you've got the Democrats who are, are going to be voting uh, this weekend on whether to rearrange their primary election. What's your thought on that um, being pushed by the, uh, the president of the United States? And how do you think that may impic- impact what Republicans do uh, in future primaries?
7: Yeah, it's a, it's a big deal. I think if they move it to South Carolina, it's a good idea. David and I have waded through the caucuses of Iowa. It's the weirdest experience. Um, you know, you're it's basically like a student body election. There's very few people that you need to win that thing. Um, I think one of the big impacts here on the Democratic changing the uh, calendar is going to be in New Hampshire. Because mm-hmm. in New Hampshire, they have open primaries. And if there's not a Democratic candidate running at the same time that the Republican primary occurs, it's going to free up a lot of voters, or independents and Democrats, who could vote in that Republican primary. And, and that's going to be difficult. to. It's very interesting. You could say that they're going to go in and vote for someone other than Trump. You could say they're going to go in and vote for Trump because they think Trump will be the easiest one to defeat. We just don't know yet. But it's a real wild card that will be opened up.
0: I love wild cards. Thank you to David Pluff and Stuart Stevens. I appreciate you. Up next, The Daily Show's Jordan Klepper joins me to share some of the depressingly hilarious things he's learned about America from the MAGA crowd. Stay with us. He's back. This weekend, Donald Trump made his return to the campaign trail more than two months after announcing his bid for the White House. And some of his most devout supporters came in tow. The Daily Show's Jordan Klepper was there to interview some of them, as he has done for a number of years now. And they had some, how should we put this, breaking news to share with him.
7: Donald Trump is president right now. He's currently the president. Absolutely. He is still president. There's a lot of things that this Biden person does not have, like the presidential seal and things like that, that are pretty obvious.
6: Wait, Biden doesn't have the presidential seal? No. When he speaks, there's a presidential seal in
0: front of him. It's not real. Joining me now is Jordan Klepper, a comedian, contributor to Comedy Central's The Daily Show. Good to see you, my friend. So... <laughs> I got to take it seriously, man. I mean, because bottom line is how widely shared is that belief that Trump is the current president of the United States?
6: Well, I I will say what was interesting about this event. This was an invite only event. So this wasn't a traditional rally. It was billed as an intimate event, just dodgy in the Trump world. Uh, Usually he pays for those up front. So didn't know what to expect here. But (laughs) But it was underlined that the people who were here generally were part of the GOP world in some matter or fashion. So the folks that came here weren't just people wandered by with some odd conspiracy theory. They're diehard Trump folks. They're in the game and they had some wild ideas.
0: So they're, they're excited about uh, the prospects of the president running again, for sure. Uh, but I, I guess I'm left with asking, how do, how do they explain the fact that Joe Biden is the president? He's actually in the White House. Uh, do they think Trump is running the country from Mar-a-Lago? Well, I think explain
6: is a heavy word there. There's not a <laughs> ton of explanation. Uh, avoidance is a term I would, okay. I would use. Uh, uh, running away from a conversation, yep. that tended yep. to Ignoring. happen. I think <laughs> Yeah, I think a lot of folks that I would talk to didn't wanna confront the fact that Joe Biden was in charge. And like those women that we just saw and other people that I talked to who cling to the fact that he not only won, but still holds some power. Again, they're not running into people who press that point of view. And so when you ask them about things like running the military, they haven't thought it through because there's some things that the military does that they also don't support. And that doesn't jive with that initial big idea
0: that Trump's the man in charge. All right, since you brought it up, uh, let's hear what they had to say about who controls the military. What is he doing as president?
6: Uh, he is in charge of the military. Great. The military is in charge of this whole
1: thing.
7: Donald- the military were put in charge in 2018 when President Trump signed an executive order.
6: The American military arms that are going to Ukraine, we have Donald Trump to thank for that?
7: No. no that's-, that's two n- there There's, there's
3: two...
6: There's two militaries.
7: There's the good and the bad.
6: So there's two militaries. Donald Trump's in charge of the good one.
7: Yes.
0: Biden's in charge of the bad military.
7: That's yeah. exactly right.
0: You, you, you have followed uh, these folks for a, a number of years now. So how concerned are you about the fact that facts aren't relevant here? They still believe these kinds of conspiracies and these theories that are otherworldly.
6: I, the, the fact that facts aren't relevant isn't new, but. I'm still surprised at these events, which should be worrisome to to everyone. the The fact that there's still ideas out here that that go beyond what I've already heard at many many of these events uh, it, it it deeply concerns me. There's there's a larger question as to how widespread the support is. I think that's something only time will tell. Uh, but the ideas that are around here, like like you just saw, there are folks out there who will deny reality. To its face, uh, and will just blindly, blindly put their put their vote in and their their life behind this one man, no matter what he says. And that's, so- as always, is scary this this time around.
0: Yeah, it it is, and, and I want to play a little bit more from your uh, interaction specifically on how the MAGA community uh, as a whole claims to be adopting a, a different tone uh, for this election cycle.
6: What are you seeing that is different about Trump and his? tone with this kind of an event? I think it's more elevated. He's at a more, kind of a mature level. How everybody's got all their advisors, it's almost like he's finally listening to his a little bit as far as tone the comments down. Are you noticing even the MAGA community being oh, more great. serious and respectable? If you watch the conservative rhetoric, It looks like you still love America. Conservative rhetoric still respects positions of power in this country. Our police, our military. Our executive branch. Exactly. What's your hat say? (laughs) I don't remember. I could sh a better president.
0: (laughs) So, Jordan, we got about 30 seconds left, Brody. Have their views evolved at all, or are they still using the same talking points?
6: Well, first of all, I give that guy credit. I had that same hat a couple years back. So (laughs) it's a good hat. No disrespect (laughs) if you had it. No, there's there's no evolution of ideas. There's devolution of ideas. And that's that's where the scariness
0: arises. Thank you, my friend Jordan Klepper. Really appreciate you. Good work, as always. We'll be right back after this. Before we go, I want to remind you about a new series on the Readout blog in Black History Uncensored. Jahan Jones highlights black creators targeted by Republican bands. Today, he looks at writing by CRT founder Kimberly Crenshaw and why some on the right are so desperate to censor it. A lot of people talk about CRT. Few people know what it is or what it actually teaches. Scan the QR code on your screen to check out today's post on the readout blog and stay tuned all month long for the history many conservatives don't want to learn. And that's tonight's readout. All in with Chris Hayes starts now.
8: There comes a point.